Good afternoon, uh, Tommy. Hey, Sir Finley, how you doing, sir? I'm doing all right, but I'm doing a little. I'm a little um, like shaken by this episode to some degree because. Uh, I've kind of wanted to do an episode on, and, and this is the conversation we just had, is it Luis Rayner or Luisa Reiner? I've heard all kinds of uh, pronunciations of her name, um, but we're talking about, let's just say Luis Rayner. Luis Rainier, that's what I heard. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not even Oh, Rainier, like the mountain. Yeah. That you were making. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, not altogether sure. Geological joke or something. Well, um, yeah, I, I'm just going to go with with Louise Rayner then because that's how I've thought of her name forever. But but the thing is, like, I was really excited about Louise Rayner doing this episode mm-hmm. because um, I'd only seen her in one movie, and and it, that that role excited me so much, and thought, oh, let's explore Louise Rayner, and then. When I went exploring, it kind of shook me up in a weird way. So it's like, okay. here's the, here's one premise. Like, she's got this unique quality about her because she was the first actress to win two Academy Awards at all, I think. And certainly the back first, to back, first too, to yeah. do two back-to-back, right? To win yeah. 37 and 38 for films in 36 and 37. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, oh, boy, there's going to be a treasure trove here. And I was kind of surprised that there wasn't. And in fact, I had reached out to Luis Rayner's daughter, who's, I don't know, in her 60s or something, and wrote, and wrote a, a biography of her mother. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, we could promote her biography and we could um, talk to her about some stuff. And in a way, I'm glad that she brushed us off because I would have felt a little more constrained. I would have been honest, but I would have felt more constrained than I feel without her to talk about the mixed review I'm giving Luis Rayner. Interesting. Okay. Now, first off, before we go any further, I have to stop and go. Like, I'm, I'm in the same bag as you. I've really only seen the one movie. Beforehand. So, yeah, I had. And uh, frankly, it was so long ago, I'd forgotten many aspects of it. In fact, read the book, too. I mean, it was. Yep. I, think we, I think we watched it in class relative to having seen the movie. Uh, to, uh, read the book, saw the movie to sort of go along with it. I um I I saw the movie on PBS with my dad with my family my mom and my dad when I was a uh-huh. kid and was very taken with it and then I read the book later so I did it in the, the order you're not supposed to do it um, but I'm not unhappy about it for reasons we can talk about later and maybe particular to to Louise Rayner but but um, I I was interested in her because she was married to Clifford Odets who I would like to do an episode on Clifford Odets sometime um, yeah. apparently Clifford Odets um, helped to ruin Luis Rayner's career a bit. Um, if right. the movie Francis starring uh, Jessica... Fucking Jessica... Lang. Jessica Lang. Jessica Lang um, is any indication. Um, Clifford Odets did a number on her as well. He was kind of a piece of shit, I guess, who who, who um, did wrote some great stuff, though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's the uh, long. Yeah, there's the Arthur, long. Arthur Miller is the only great like playwright who who actually stands out as a good person too. Like, I'm, I'm assuming you can hear on your end. What's it? I'm assuming that you can hear on your end the insane gardening that's happening behind me. I can I can almost barely hear you. These headphones are on their last legs. I need to get some new ones. Oh, uh, okay. So, um, uh, you don't have to use headphones, by the way, Tom, on your end. 
Yeah, I'd prefer it because this way you don't hear my fan going off here. Oh, okay, okay. So we're just, it's just COVID fucking Zoom time, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, so she, you know, but that to me is like, oh, maybe that'll be more interesting. And what it turns out is like the reason everyone knows about Louise Rayner, really, well, first of all, she lived to be 105. So like she was an old woman right. doing talk shows and, and reminiscing when people sort of cared to do some reminiscing. And her last appearance on a, on a major screen, The Love Boat. Yeah, of course, The Love Boat. Um, yeah, but but also um, uh, the other reason is that she she was sort of like at the Academy Award curse. She got these two back to back Oscars, and then yeah. pretty much never did another thing of of note. She might have made like a dozen other movies afterwards, mm. um, you know. But it's like nothing. So it's like so we focused on these two. Um, and, and, and which happened to be her Academy Award winners. Right. And I think it's like, that seems like a cheap thing way to go sometimes, but in this case, it's actually appropriate because it says so much about like, I guess how and why she disappeared. And also the other thing is the first movie made me kind of crazy about a lot of things. It gave me so many fucking, uh, like a mixed bag of feelings. So the first movie is 1936's The Great Zigfield. Great Zigfield, which, by the way, when you when you brought it up, I had no idea it was three hours long. I didn't either. I had no idea that it was three hours long. It um, It's from 1936. It uh, chronicles the life of, of Flo Zigfield, the great sort of burlesque, to Broadway, you know, producer who himself, like his own sort of life was this, um, you know, uh, uh, at least as interesting as his productions. Oh, yeah. I mean, but, but the word is impresario. Like, that's that mm. definitely is that, is that guy. That's a crazy amount of lawn mowing that's happening behind me. I don't know what's wrong yeah. with this guy. Anyway, so um, I'm gonna, let me fix your mic a little bit. Let me fix the, the insight. Let me get, say something. Uh, here I am. Can you hear me? Yeah, that's better for sure. I just want to make sure the audience gets your golden um, words, Tom. Yeah, I just want to make sure that you understand he's an impresario. No, yeah, yeah, I got it. So so, initially I thought, well, it's a bit of a cheat because she's third build in this movie, even though she won the icon. But the thing is, Myrna Loy is second build, and I think Louise Rayner is in as much, or if not more, of the film than Myrna Loy and we can talk about their their performances in relationship to each other, um, but I'm gonna just sort of just head out by saying this: I fucking thought every second of Louise Rayner on the screen was dreadful. I mean, really? it, it was okay. fucking terrible. I mean, it'll become more apparent in the second film why it's interesting that she's a German playing other people. But even a German playing a French entertainer here, I mean, it was almost like satirical, like SNL French person. I am, I am so upset, but the stage lads. It's like, my God, I mean, that's just ter- terrible acting. And I like her so much in the other film. She's terrible in it. Myrna Loy is not that great in it, frankly. Um, no, I mean, this is definitely, well, first off, we have to acknowledge this movie is a William Powell vehicle all the way. He's really stupid. He's taking the whole show. Sort of. But I, I'm going to go, I, but here's the thing. Um, Louise Rainier, her character is actually based on a person. I guess she was sort of like doing, behaving as that person behaved. I don't care. So I'm going to give her a little bit of license on that one. I didn't, she didn't bug me as much as she apparently bugged you. 
Well, it just was, I just was dreading every time she was on screen. I mean, she was really awful. I was, and maybe my expectations too, were so high. I didn't like the person she was being. Like. The person was not interesting. Um, I thought her acting. Just a hysterical, annoying person. Well, that's it. Yeah. I mean, I guess there is that sort of like how close to the bone do you play it in terms of emulating real life. But I mean, mm -hmm. the advice I always go with is it doesn't matter if it really, it quote unquote, really happened. I still am the, the reader or the viewer who has to deal with it. So either Fair you enough. make a different choice or fictionalize or something because it was like her, her, the, the, the great dramatic scene she's always paid for and why she won the Academy Awards, the phone scene. Uh, I mean, I wanted to shove that phone <laughs> up her twat and, and as our friend Jim Norton would say, throw her into the uh, uh, chinaberry bush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, she's, and she plays this uh, hysterically annoying person yeah. uh, in there. I, it does make you wonder what didn't win Best Actress that year. Like, well, wait a minute. Like, who hit the deck on that? Well, that's the thing, because at first I was like, well, 1936, I got it. But but it's like, not only had, had, had James Cagney done The Public Enemy five years earlier, this very year, not even nominated The Petrified Forest. Oh, okay, Betty Davis. Now, The Petrified Forest has its own moments of bad acting, but that's relegated to like some of the, the lesser stars in that movie. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting mm -hmm. story. This story is potentially interesting, by the way. It has a lot of things going for it as a story. Well, first of all, as you say, William Powell. William Powell is always 100% delightful to me in any film, even a film I don't particularly like, like Mr. Roberts. He's just sort of mm -hmm. there being his William Powell best, and I, he has a sort of a... Uh, uh, as fuck, debonair like a motherfucker. He is, and it's like he just he he just no, more than Cary Grant even like nothing bothers him, and so you become less bothered by life. He's just like nah, nah, really, we're on fire. Yeah, we'll see about that now. <laughs> um, you know, and and he had sort of um, established. You know, remember, recall by the way that we have covered him in a couple of films, not the least of which was that minor role in 1922's um, Sherlock Holmes, where he played the the, the villain in that. Um, mm -hmm. But he had two years earlier. Um, established um, something with Myrna Loy in the the Thin Man series, Thin Man series which is right. a perf right up his alley to play Nick, oh. yeah, right? Perfect. Um, uh, he had already already you been see, the guy who like you basically uh, suspect wakes up and there's a cocktail next to his like his alarm. Yeah, and at the same time, unlike it's not James Bondish, it's not like pushing it in your face. It's like he's sort of su he's he's so himself. You can't believe that he's not suave in real life. And that's the Cary right. Grant or maybe George Clooney factor as well, right? He'd been in a film, at least one film already, with Louis Rayner. Um, and, and one is apt to think that he carried them both. Looking back, on uh, when I look at this film, which is supposed to be The Great Triumph, one of the things I like about the film is that because it's three hours long, there's an epic quality and opportunities to have a, like a, a way we were kind of, type of sentimentality. Oh, yeah. there's a love, and now there's a lost love, and that lost love is looking back. And believe me, I was clinging on to the screen, hoping to sort of feel that. But since I had no sympathy for either Myrna Loy or especially Louise Rayner, as a as a human being, because they're just so annoying, I I just found it was like a um, um, kind of a, a reminiscent um, sort of look at, at William Powell being William Powell. That's what comforted right. me about this movie was that he was yeah. him. No, I could see that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just a, just like the fucking the ultimate cool dude. Like he's out of money. He doesn't give a shit. So now he just manages to get more money, and then he puts on another show and he gets the Zeke Follies. Uh, now, let me ask you this: Now, her aside, William Powell aside, what do you think of the movie overall? Um, 
I, well, the pro- I don't know. I was divided because, you know, there were those elements. Like, I like the beginning a lot, which, by the way, Frank Morgan, um, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain was fucking, I mean, the, the wizard from The Wizard of Oz was great. There's a lot of Wizard of Oz connections in this movie, by the way. Um, okay. there's, yeah, yeah. there's Frank Morgan who plays his sort of like his competitor, but old friend. And they just break each other's balls throughout the movie. He was fucking delightful over the top, mm-hmm. but completely delightful. Great companion. I mean, I almost wish they'd cut out all of the scenes with, with, uh, William Powell and the women. And then all of the, <laughs> the, the stage stuff, which I'll get to in a second, because th- that relationship I thought was great. Um, yeah. they had all these minor characters, Edward, um, Demichek, who plays, uh, who is My Three Sons, Charlie on My Three Sons. He's been in a lot of movies. Oh, he recognizes Jesus, his voice okay. all over the place. Uh, Ray Bulger, essentially as himself. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we can talk about Ray Bulger later on. Um, a guy I thought was Will Rogers in the movie, but Will Rogers had apparently died in a, in a plane accident in Alaska prior to the filming of this movie. So that's actually a Ray... Uh, uh, um, who am I saying? Not Ray Rogers. Uh, Will Rogers. Will Rogers, um, like impersonator. In this okay. Movie. Okay. Um, but they're all. They, they did get Fanny Bryce in there, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, like but her. you know what it reminded me when I saw Fanny Bryce was how much better Robert Streisand as Fanny Bryce was than Fanny Bryce. I found Fanny Bryce <laughs> lacking in all entertainment, um, although she contributed to the entertain the, the racist entertainment that was fucking peppered throughout like the, the second act of this movie. Oh, but, um, yeah. but all of this is a way of saying like, no, I, I, I thought it was not a very good movie. Um, it sort of um, had, had potential but it, it was a, a a victim of its time, and the biggest sort of victim of its time was the '30s, where they would put on whole movies. In fact, I watched this on my computer, so I, I rented it, and on the side I would see suggestions, and the suggestions were like, um, "Ladies' fashion review of 1932." But that was a movie. The same goddamn thing. But that, that, that was, was a movie, or something. that was a movie, and it's like it reminds me of of Singing in the Rain, where it was like, uh, do you remember when they were doing like that sort of montage of musical numbers when sound came along, and yeah. it was like. A, f- a monkey for a suit will do her well, a pretty girl. And it's like some yeah. sort of, um, half gay guy with a British accent singing about the fashions or hats. It's like a movie about hats. By the way, I think we should probably, I think we need to watch that movie, by the way. Which okay. one? Oh, the, yeah, the fashion, whatever, of 1932. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it they would be like, they had like a lot of, uh, like, they had a lot of ambition about putting together like these really, you know, fascinating set pieces, yep. which is what Siegfried Follies was all about. Of course. You know, I mean, it's, they basically wanted to showcase the entertainment of a previous era that it was, wasn't relevant then and is still less relevant now. Well, it's funny how so. the movies so early on, you know, let's say early on sound for sure, but within the first 20 years of major, you know, commercial movies, how much it became meta, how much it started to eat its own tail. It's, it's sort of like, we're going to make a movie about how entertainers entertain. And it's like, wow, already? Yeah, in, in a sense, this kind of reminded me a lot of, like, The Greatest Show on Earth. It was, like, as much yes. an opportunity to show a spectacle through a movie medium as it was any kind of a movie. But I would say this in comparison, because I thought of The Greatest Show on Earth, too. When it was better than The Greatest Show, show on Earth, it was much better than The Greatest Show on Earth. And when it was worse, it was much worse. And to me, uh, part of the problem was... And also, I'm watching this going, there's no way to live in a live stage show they could get something that perfect. 
too. Like they just seemed a little unbelievable the way they. But 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 again, they were using movies to show this kind of thing. So well, but it's like I thought about that and I thought, well, we also had a different mentality. I mean, we used to throw kids down a well hoping they didn't die so we can get a shot in a movie or something. And and no better thinking, world, yes. Yeah, I was thinking about you know from the Cotton Club, and I always forget, I want to say it's not the Christian Brothers, but the, there's two African American like they're five foot like twins and they did those crazy dances did you ever see those dances and it was like oh my god that's that's real that's amazing so it's like i even even though i hate musicals and everything i wanted to be on board with the the showcasing and like the ray bulger showcase um where unbelievably of course ray bulger is like a a, a a a carpenter or something and he and and William Powell like let's put you as a lead in the next show because I saw you a tap dancer on a piece of paper five seconds ago. But Ray Bolger does a great. You reminded like oh these guys were were burlesque and vaudevillians and they were fucking fantastic. So the Ray Bolger thing was great. But the problem was not that they had those. Of course they have to have those during the Great Zigfield. Is that they would go on for like eight minutes. Yeah. And it was just kind of torturous. What are you looking yeah. for? I see you researching something. What do you got for me, pal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they were going forever. And yeah, I got a little bit, yeah, I don't know. But, um, but I was sad. Yeah. I mean, the ending, I felt I felt sad for the character, the William Powell character. I love it. again? I felt sad for the William Powell character at the end. It had a very uh-huh. Theodore Dreiser quality. When it wasn't about the, the women, the dames, and about the musical, when it was just the story of him and like his friends and his rise, it was very like um, a Theodore Dreiser novel almost, you know? That whole thing yeah. where he's in a barbershop. And he overhears people talking shit about him. And he's like, I'll have four. I actually was on board with that. I was I was kind of on his side. So as a story about like. But that's the part where he also has them arrested so he can show them up later on. It's, it's insanity. Fuck. Of course. Fucked up. It's fucked up and it's insane. And, and as someone points out, even in the movie, it's illegal. Um, but, you know, there were as a, a movie about like social Darwinism, let's say, like I, I thought it, it had so much potential, but it was just way down. By Louise yeah. Louise Rayner, frankly, really weighed this movie down for me a lot, much more than Merloy, who also was not good in it. Do you think it might be a function of you just being disappointed in her, or do you think she yep. actually had that kind of no. gravity in the movie? No, I think it, it. I can't discount my disappointment in her for sure um, because of the next movie that she did and that we're going to talk about. Um, but also because I just sort of, I think I invented that she was automatically an interesting person. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways I have to talk about the next movie to talk about why I'm disappointed with her in this movie. Not that I'm trying to jump there, but, but it, I want to do that too, but let's, let's give it a second, but I want to talk about how the difference in acting that you see between the two movies. Okay. So she won an Oscar for the first movie. Yep. You're going to disagree with that, with that verdict. Right. Yeah. But if you see that, and then the next year you see this other movie, yeah. her getting it for the second movie makes, mo- makes oh, yeah. more sense. Oh, makes and, a shit ton of sense. And also raises the bar to be disappointed. If you, if you, if you do it backwards, you know, like mm-hmm. if you're not living in the thirties and seeing these sequentially, it's like you, you watch the good earth and you're like, all oh, right, let's great, great Zigfield, bring it on. And like, wah, yeah, but it's just a tremendous shift in acting that she does between these two movies. It is. There's a, a nuance, and then there's a this previous one not nuanced at all. The second movie, much it's very nuanced. Speaking of not nuanced, 
Um, Al Jolson from the Jazz Singer called, tone it down, uh, guys, with the blackface in this movie was outrageous. I mean, I actually turned away from the screen in white embarrassment at one point. Like, ah, it's it's from the 30s. <laughs> I hope no one's watching me. Well, good thing the second movie will fix all that. Well, I think it does in a way. I'd like to make the argument that it actually does. But but the and, and it made me also, and we're living in times where I would notice more, but the blackfacing also made me notice like, Oh, and then the other things you almost wouldn't notice, like like uh, the Chinese people playing Chinese people, people playing Native Americans. It's sort of like, wow, there really was a time, and I'm sure people would argue that we're still in that time, but there really was a time when all non-white people were fodder for our amusement, apparently, in yeah. cinema. And so, you know... Well, the other thing about it, too, is that, that it's kind of interesting, and, and it, because because their blackface is featured rather prominently in this movie oh, a couple of times, yeah. is, is also what comes across immediately to my brain isn't just it's offensive, but it's so... Un, it's not even that funny. It's incredibly an unnecessary step. Oh, it doesn't add anything. Uh, yeah, it's unnecessary. And then even in the context of the film, which I'm sure wasn't even trying to highlight this, they were probably just getting it accurate, there's a, a white guy in... I mean, I mean crazy blackface in this movie. He gets off. It's not funny. And not even because, like you say, it's racist. Beyond that, it's just not funny. The white audience stands up, a standing ovation, and then when they sit down, you see the only black people in the theater, the musicians behind them. It's just like, um, Anyway, um, I would give this movie... I, I, it's not like I think it's a terrible movie. I'd give it like a five or a six. It, the, the thing that makes it not worth your time, though is that what's good about it, you have to sit through so much stuff that's not good to get those those moments yeah, that are those good. those fucking musical pieces, those set pieces, man, those are rough. And, I mean, even when they were, and, and guess what? They were done really fucking well. Yeah. But they still were oh, just. Oh, they were, yeah. It's, a, it's an entertainment sensibility that makes no sense to me whatsoever. But, but I admire I have it. I to say this. I would recommend this to somebody who loves musicals, who really loves a good musical, and uh, or somebody who's 89 or something. I don't know. But I would also say two. that if you love good musicals, I, I even though I don't like that kind of stuff, I appreciated the, the like the craftsmanship behind those scenes. But no, even there, yeah, there's a problem yeah. because then you have I to mean, sit. They're really well produced. But then you have to sit through all the other stuff to get to that. So you're kind of screwed no matter what you like in a movie. And I would say I would say the, I'd give these recommendations: Manhattan Melodrama, um, The Thin Man, uh, Our Man Godfrey. You can go on and on. If you want some William Howard, uh, Powell um, relaxation and comfort. Go to other movies that are an hour and 40 oh, minutes long. Where he's... Man. Just go there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we really are excitable nerds. We really... Yes. Yes. <laughs> the Thin Man has your answers for you, my friend. The world is literally collapsing around us, but more important than anything is you and I um, getting all worked up over Louise Rayner and the 1936 The Great Zigfield. I think the Thin Man had said everything he had to say by the fifth movie. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. The Thin Man series did go on for, for too long. Yeah, I loved I, I'll save it for when we actually do that, but I did love The Thin Man. I remember reading The Thin Man. Red Harvest, The Glass Key, and then rereading um, The Maltese Falcon all on a bus trip from like when I was 11, from like Oregon down to Fresno. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's anyway. a good read, dog. That's a good read. Oh, yeah. I was full of it. All right. So uh, that's 1936 is The Great Zigfield. Um, and then Louis Rainer, a more pr appropriate film to attach to Louis Rainer would be 1937's The Good Earth. 
the good earth which which by the way one of the things that's really interesting about this movie is how many things mitigated against her being in the movie yes oh yeah no question it wasn't maybe mayor hated the idea of her doing that having i guess established her as the glamour kid from the from yep. you know the great Siegfeld. it 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 bucked against his sense of what an actress should be doing for her to be in this movie here, but it kind of, there was kind of no other option, I guess. And I think it was, now if I, if I go back to our, our episode somewhere in the episodes in the sixties, I think 65 or something. And for anime Wong, it was anime Wong who was offered a role. I think as the mistress in this movie and refused it because Paul Muni and Louise Rayner were, were doing what we would call yellow face. Now I go one better. I'll go you one better. She was originally supposed to play Olam. Oh, really? But, Miscongenial because Paul Muni had been put in as the as the act as the main as the main actor. Yeah, they couldn't put a Chinese woman in there because of miscongeniation. That wouldn't be fair to the white people. I agree. The laws, yeah, <laughs> right, of course, yeah. So, um, so, so because it was fucking illegal for Anime Wong to be in a movie where she could potentially kiss a white man, yeah. they had to get a white woman to do the to do the role. Yeah, and let me. I'm so gonna... she, and then, and then you're absolutely correct. She she was offered the uh, the option to be in the concubine, and she literally said, "Fuck off." Uh, yeah, so I'm the only Chinese person in this movie, and I'm going to be the asshole right. of the whole movie. Right, yeah, so, no. right, yeah. And and um, before I, uh, I'm gonna. I'm going to add fuel to this fire and then take oh, a left yeah. and then take a left turn on you. Um, some of the other embarrassments are, and I forget oh, his name, is coming up. but speaking, speaking of the petrified forest, uh, the, the grandpa that you ever hear a tale of yes. being shot by Billy, the kid, he's the father, the Chinese father in this. And then the father from, it happened one night, the rich father who's, who's chasing around, uh, what's her name, um, plays, oh, is he the uncle? He plays the uncle. Oh God! Fucking that uncle's the most hateful person in any movie I've ever seen. I think. But also, kind of the Frank Burns of this movie, like hilarious. <laughs> I mean, I find him delightfully awful in this movie. But look, here's the thing. Here's the left turn I'm going to take, and and maybe it's. A, I'll start with this big premise. I think, to some degree, even the book, but certainly the movie, um, is so good that it overcomes the shittiness of. Its existence. <laughs> yes, right. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, Luis Rayner, it is, it is, it is offensive. I mean that not in the PC way, but the truest, like just normal human being being offended that what we just described. All the white people uh, playing Chinese, anime Wong being edged out of it for those legal reasons, all that. But here's the deal: a, and and here's where you can go back to Pearl S. Beck, Buck. A lot of people would make the argument today, and they make it about other authors. What is Pearl S. Buck doing writing that that book? Okay, that's an arguable thing. Maybe I think she's such a good writer; she she overcomes it. And what is what are Paul Muni and Louise Rayner doing playing these roles? They're so fucking good. Yeah, they're they just off. are. That's the, I guess yeah, that's the, that's the big downside against it. Yeah, um, but it, 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 this this movie is is like fucking just an interesting over and above like the acting or anything or anything like that. But as a historical sort of uh, nugget. Yep. It's a really fascinating goddamn movie, yep. just just from that standpoint. So, you know, you see what the book is originally. Uh, Pearl S. Buck was a missionary's wife in China. Uh, so there's the whole like missionary presence in China, and 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 if you're talking about problematic, I mean, the, the condescending sort of Christian approach to uh, bringing Christianity to China for sure. But she wrote this little thing, and then this movie got made. And sort of it normalized Chinese culture in American culture to a sense. I can imagine being a Chinese person and being embarrassed as fuck to watch this movie. Sure. But at the same time, when World War II rolled around, <clears throat> this movie had a footprint 
in our in our relationship with uh, with China. Yeah. Well, it's mean, fascinating what a movie can do sometimes. Can, has the potential to do. I remember watching a documentary about Chinese Americans in the 40s and 50s, and this woman saying um, that there were instances, like <laughs> after Pearl Harbor, she was Chinese, and, and um, some officials coming to her house, and, and okay, everybody's here. And it's like, we, first of all, we're Chinese. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, right. so, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, agreed. Uh, yes, historically, um, it has that potential to sort of at least normalize a conversation about like differences and something like that. But yes, I don't know. But 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 like I said, it just it brought sort of Chinese culture in. Like, come on, look at our look at our grandmother's fucking house. Yep. Remember that? Like everything in there, she had like this whole Chinese theme going on in there. Yep. That comes that that springs from like this weird, odd relationship World War Two time, uh, and that's that's based like that. A lot of that is based on this movie and on that book. Yeah, but what? Okay, and we're going far afoot, but the, I don't it. know where this is going. I maybe. don't care, but it's interesting because it's part of the conversation <laughs> we have to have about the Good Earth before we talk about the specifics of the movie. Is that a good or a bad thing? Because some people might, and I think they could have a good argument that what it really brings is not an understanding. Standing, but a fetishizing, which is also what our grandmother did, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's very condescending. There's nothing, yeah. there's, there's almost nothing not condescending about this. So so I acknowledge all of that stuff. And here's what yeah. I'm saying. Here's how, how good I think the movie is and how good I think she is in this movie is that somehow, despite all of that and despite the, the stuff we would know because we, we enjoy looking at the behind the scenes stuff of the movie and the history, despite all of that, they they managed to make this movie a universal tale of yeah. and then fill in the blank like greed, mistrust, loyalty. I mean, family. Family. I mean, it is um, a startlingly good movie, and and the fact that it's in black and white. I was thinking about this, you know, in in 1937, there certainly were color films, but still they were kind of like cartoonish, right? So it yeah. seems like a movie about uh, based on Pearl S. Buck's The Good Earth should be in color. But but what I thought was interesting about it was black and white has always had this quality, even when you use it in modernity, of being otherworldly. It's why you should make yeah. some movies in black and white even today because it hasn't. And, and to some degree, placing this story in an otherworldly weird, I mean weird in the, in the sort of like um, spiritual sense of weird, a context yeah. Is makes it more interesting. So I, I loved even the cinematography minus a couple of stock footage scenes, which were poorly put together because it's 1937. And I have to say this too, like I, you know, um, my love of black and white. It's really it's really hard because you know I have room. I have a roommate. You know I have roommates, and we watch movies, and they're like they just don't get why people would ever use black and white. Right. Like it just it just it makes no sense to them. But for me, it like black and white photography, particularly this variety, invites you to fill in. Like yeah, it, it invites you in, like in, a, in, a, in an emotional and in a, in a, you know, in a, in a somewhat mental uh, way. It invites you into the world of the movie. I like that. Yeah, no, hundred percent. So it's, I, I <laughs> right, think fucking old men rationalizations. Uh, well, go. whatever. I think it works in this film. Um, the um, the arc of the film is also like because it's a little bit longer too. I think it's about two hours and fifteen minutes. But the arc, I think, is is it's so well paced. They they spend the yeah. perfect amount of time in each area. You know, so she plays. Uh, the wife, uh, she plays a former slave. Right, Actually. kitchen slaves for a wealthy family in the town there. You, you think about it, which I think this actually is interesting because <clears throat> because I think the pacing is what saves it from being a Dickens novel. But it had Dickens qualities about it still, didn't it? Absolutely, it yeah, no, absolutely. But you, you almost don't see them because yeah. it's so 
it kind of moves and sets this nice little this this very nice pace. Yeah, I think I think he had something. So you have Paul Muni and you have um, <coughs> Louis Rayner um, made up by makeup artists to be you know Oriental, right? But the thing is that's that sort of starts to slip away from me too because what Louis Rayner does here remarkably in opposition to what she did in, in the Great Ziegfeld is she just very very subtly and mostly with her face just does the acting. It's so it's so minimalist and pure. She almost doesn't speak. Yes. You almost forget that she can speak through large portions of this movie. And she creates a tension. And so what happens is even in parts where Hollywood or Pearl S. Buck or a combination of the two could really fuck up this movie. For instance, when she picks up the, the apricot pit and, and yeah. plants a tree and like, oh, uh, metaphor are coming, everyone. I buy it. Because yeah. of the way she handles the, the the scene and the way she handles her reaction to the husband, and so that when she finally when she does get excited because the husband's making a wrong move, you are so on her side because she yeah, hasn't just sure. been she hasn't been, as an actress been like biding her time in front of you. She has made you bide the time with her. Yeah, I think she's stupendous in this film, and Paul Muni is good too. It is great. Yeah. Oh no, I think Paul Muni is amazing in this movie too. I, he's actually the one that I'm most shocked by in that sense. It's I haven't been seen years since I've seen this movie, and I'd forgotten. Yeah. <coughs> like he moves, he moves it. He moves the movie forward. She yeah. anchors the movie. Yeah, because normally he's he's kind of a George Rafty kind of guy in in the most yeah, of his yeah. movies, right? So it's like I I didn't expect you know I forgot that he played the husband actually in this movie until I, I saw, but it's like yeah, so it's like okay, like I don't know what to do with this because I understand how this movie. Is, I take nothing away from anyone who looks at this in 2020 and is kind of offended by it, but yeah. it's also like it's one of those rare baby in the bathwater situations where it's like. I'm going to tell you something you don't like, which is to ignore <laughs> what's offending you and be open to the fact that great art is happening nonetheless. Right. I mean, it yeah, is, I, I would go with you on that. Yeah. And, and not in the way like I, I sometimes would say the same thing about D.W. Griffith and, and like Birth <laughs> of a Nation. But for the reason I would make the case for Birth of a Nation being great art, despite its offense, is is for the technical reasons, which are also right. present here. But this is also like there, there's a beautiful aesthetic to it. That doesn't make yeah. sense given how problematic it is, but it, it is. There's also the, there's also an element to this movie I think that I that I don't think can be easily dismissed, which is, um, yes, yeah, absolutely condescending. Gotcha that I, I fucking grant you that. One, but there's also a love going on here. There's also kind of a love of the of the, of the material that comes through in the movie. Yeah, and and well, I think one of the things it does well is anything that that sort of disturbs you. You know, people. There are people who uh, who were related to, for instance, who have problems getting on board with a character that's not likable. Like that's an important thing to them, and I think that's yeah. that's kind of silly. But I do understand unlikable situations or tensions giving you problems. And I would say what, what, what this movie does that's smart and that other movies, other smart directors have done since then is they um, do like a sleight of hand with what's unlikable sometimes. So it's like, it's important that you have an uncle who's just an absolute con man piece of shit. Just a monster. He's a horrible person. <laughs> In the story. But it's also important that while you sympathize with, with the husband, you, he becomes an asshole for a while. Yes, right. So, and then also, like at the end, like, he, he proves like he wasn't stupid all that time. He knew he was being taken advantage of. I think the best scene. In, knew it. The best scene in the whole movie is when he comes to her and says he has a mistress now, and 
and you see him going back and forth with trying to be like the asshole people like we try to be when we, we break up with a woman. We try to be yeah. such an asshole that they break up with us and seeing that it's not working and then and then realizing that there are two things can happen at once. This bitch is not let me off the hook. Yeah, he, he can be he can have love for his wife and be in love with this new woman at the same time. Right. And, and that it's it's a fucked up situation, and and the fact that she plays into it normally again that's one of those things in a movie or a book where you'd be like, oh, you'd be so frustrated. All you do is have like more admiration for what a beautiful character she is. Right. Yeah. It's a weird movie. It's I don't know that there's a another. I guess I should say book, but I think the movie does something with it that's interesting. I don't know that you there's know, the another movie, and the movie book like are it. Very different things. Like yep. the movie has a certain optimism it deals with. The the book is the yep. book has like like good things happen, but in the end, it's all a shit show. Like that's, yeah. I think that was Buck's point. Yeah, I, well, I remember. <laughs> I remember watching this with my with my uh, mom and dad. On, it was on PBS, and the the scene that terrified me as a kid was when all the relatives and townspeople discover the smoke in the chimney and, and they go, they're cooking! And they come and they discover that they've been cooking dirt. Yeah. Yeah. They made me hungry. Well, you had a deal. Your dad was voted most likely to cook dirt for a meal at some point. In high school, two years running. That's true. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> um, Pearl S. Buck, I wanted this just because we're a, a Fresno show, uh, that in the late 40s or maybe early 50s, um, Reedley College uh, got Prolus Buck to come and speak at the college. Really? Yeah. And what it reminded me of was that we're such a shitty country now that we tell ourselves that that we're more sophisticated, but we may have been more sophisticated in the 40s and 50s sometimes because you could no more convince people. And let's say, let's forget 2020 because it's a pandemic and 2019 to shell out that kind of money to have a Pearl S. Buck. But you could back then. It was important. Yeah. It was important somehow. Even Reedley, the little town outside of Fresno, knew that it was important to, to not miss that opportunity. So she came to Reedley and spoke for a while. And then the other thing I wanted to mention, but you probably have more to talk about this movie, is that this also reminds me of the other conversation that's very current with Halle Berry, who I'm not really a fan of, and the recent controversy because she announced, "Hey, I think," um, and she she thought she was couching it in all these terms people, that would make people love her. I am going to play a transgender man. I want to discover that culture, and it was like a People ran her out of the proverbial town on a rail, proverbial rail, um, which is to say, on the other end of all this craziness is, I mean, the craziness from 1936 is that everything you described, all white cast, and you couldn't have one actual Chinese actress because it would be illegal for her to kiss a white actor. That's the craziness there. Like, it's literally illegal. That's the craziness crazy. yeah. over here, and it's a question, and, and, and it's a real question. I'm not just trying to be a, like a conservative shithead or something. Is to what At what level do you have to be the thing you're playing? I think we recognize that anyone who slaps on... Well, but yeah, you could say the same thing for slapping on shoe polish and being blackface. So I don't want to say there's no cause for it. Yeah. Something about that seems clearly wrong, but it's like, do you have to be transgender to play a transgender person? And if the answer is no, because that's kind of my answer, like, no, the same thing, it's acting. It's like, well, what is the difference? And I don't know that there's an answer, but it's... It, it's what I love about movies and, 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 and literature is, is the unanswerable questions. I like to think about the uh, podcast we're going to inspire about unwoke uh, po other podcasts. We're going to be talking about it, Jeff. Yes. <laughs>
Yeah. And us. By the way, we never really got into the plot of the movie, did we? Yeah, a bunch of Chinese people do stuff. <laughs> well, you know what? I hate to say it. That's not inaccurate. That's what it is. It's like, it's it's uh, it's following a Chinese family through a decade, through like a period of what, 15, 20 years? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> during the early 20th century. And that's basically the movie in a well, sense. It's about class because it's still it's it's during the time of, of the emperor. Right. So it's like. He's, the ass end of the emperor, like right, right as the nationalist revolution happened. So he, yeah, so he's he's a farmer, poor farmer. He's essentially, quote unquote, awarded this wife, who's a former slave of the kitchen from the the landowner, the land baron. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just about like their relationship, trying to sort of make it and not making it at times in the context of of the history that's happening around them, in the context of the shitty villages and family, which is really fucking super shitty. Uh, I like the fact, by the way, oh, that and the famines and fucking and, uh, pestilence that shows up too. Yeah, but and, and also sort of like fortune. The idea, and I don't want to give that yeah. away, but the idea that 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 amidst all of this is fortune and misfortune, and right. and then and then loyalty. Like, what happens? Who are you when you're down, and who are you when you're up? And and some people are different, some people are the same. Um, so right. in some sense, it's a very spiritual movie. I mean, I, I it's just a fascinating sort of meditative uh, movie. Yeah, it's like I, a, I, yeah, absolutely. It's like, nah, like early, so, would you recommend this movie, Joseph? It's like an early Sunny Chiba movie. Um, uh, would I recommend this movie? I, I, I would <laughs> almost. I did give, watch Kill Bill two the other day. <laughs> I would almost give it ten out of ten. I, I mean, ten out of ten, really? Okay. I mean, it's it's pretty high up there as a movie. Yeah, it's and, a great epic. Yeah, I give it like an eight at least. Saying, seven, seven, yeah, like an eight out of ten. It's saying a lot, given that we're not in 1937, and we cannot help but notice that white people are playing Chinese people. It's it saying a lot rough. to give it that, that is very yeah, such that's rough. Not play. as rough as the Great Zigfield, though. I got to be honest, oh, my face is is definitely that step too far. Well, now if the Good Earth had occasionally like the 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 village had split, and from behind it like a but there was for you, praying for you down by the Yangtze. I thought it was going to go into sort of eye rolling sort of areas the good earth um when the locust came even the locust was done well and that's hard to pull that off in 1937 amazing great that time period mm-hmm. wasn't that amazing i would say from the this way- time period they did it well yeah i mean, I mean it would be like you could make it so much bigger and so much more terrifying with cgi but they managed to like show a field die under the weight of locusts. It's the it pro- was fucking great. Let me go back to being really old manish on you. It's the potential of the problem with CGI. It's like you could make it what you think is more terrifying, but in a way, the feeling you had from that camera of being like at the bottom of an aquarium, a dry aquarium with 10,000 locusts on top of you was more powerful than anything CGI could have done. It was smothering. Yeah. Smothering. In fact, CGI, CGI definitely uh, it encourages them to go too far for sure. Make it cartoonish. Oh, I did find. Oh, here's what makes it uh, nine out of ten instead of ten out of ten. I did find one really laughable mistake in this movie, and that's when the father beats his um, second son as an adult. He's just beating the shit out of him, like raining blows upon his back. And it's yeah, one con- it? it's one continuous take, and the son walks away, and you can see essentially like three pillows underneath his shirt. <laughs> but it was 1937. Well, that's just because you didn't see him put the pillows there just before his dad started. Hold on, Dad, hold on. And he puts in the pillows. He was <laughs> that a, part. A smart. That's a very Chinese cultural thing. I, I don't expect you to understand that, John. I do need some sensitivity training. Okay. 
Uh, great. Okay, well, I feel better. I, I, I mean, I, I didn't feel bad about this episode, but I was walking into it like so disappointed having seen The Good Earth again and then and then seeing The Great Zigfield. I thought, mm, yeah. And so I guess I would say this. Uh, I'm glad that her daughter didn't come on, <laughs> number one. Um, I'm also, um, it's an interesting story. And the interesting story is that there's not, there's not much of a story there. Yeah, right. I, it, It's a lot more limited than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Yeah, she was. Uh, yeah, she burned herself out in basically two movies. You know, the curse of the curse of the back-to-back Oscars. And well, she wasn't she, really the actress who could pull that off long range. I don't know if that's it or not. I mean, she she said and this might be just sour grapes. She said that that the problem was the expectations were so high after the second Academy Award that uh, there's I nothing. That. I, I that makes sense. Clifford Odette, <laughs> a piece of shit. Um, you know, MGM was not uh, didn't treat its stars very well. I don't know. I blame everyone. <laughs> William Powell. Yeah. Now, if William Powell had been in this as a neighbor, as a Chinese neighbor, maybe. What if he'd have played? No, if he'd have played one of the locusts. William Powell a as a locust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you know who Leo Kotke is? I'm going to end this on a, a real.